And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. Uh, As you know, we are currently in recess, so there's not an awful lot happening in terms of Holyrood. However, today we have a fantastic guest with us, um, Matt Ford, comedian, uh, who's going to tell us everything he knows about Scottish politics, (laughs) give his uh, individual take on that. Won't take long. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, and also with us is our Westminster correspondent Alex Brown and um, sadly Connor Matchett who normally guides us seamlessly through the steamy is not with us, he's on holiday, well deserved holiday so if there are any uh, technical hiccups or anything else we all know who to blame, yes that will be me Anyway, welcome to the steamy Matt Ford, um, lovely to see you Well pleasure things- to be here, thanks for having me on how are things where you are? Uh, slightly overcast, um, but fine, really. Um, I guess just like everyone else. I, I think um, the summer made you sort of feel that, you know, with the football and everything, oh, life's returning. And then it, it, it sort of isn't yet. So then it's that, it was almost like we were all allowed to move around for football and now we're not again. <laughs> and uh, I just think... If you're not a football fan, you must think that the whole world had gone mad during that month. But anyway, um, fine, basically. On the whole, fine. Still still upset about England losing in the final, although I realise I'll get very little sympathy from the people who listen to this podcast. You mentioned the football. I, I guess this, is, this isn't an intervention. That's not why we're here. This is a podcast. But I suppose <laughs> I should ask, are you okay? Um, I feel like it's the equivalent of changing your like Facebook status, like thinking of her as you post the Luke Shaw goal again. Um, are, you, are, you manage- are you managing? It's really surreal. Um, because I'd always wanted, you know, I think with all these things, it's not just about wanting England to win a tournament from my point of view. I also support Nottingham Forest. We haven't been to Wembley since 1992. We've not been in the Premier League for 22 years. So England for me isn't just about England football, it's about me as a football fan and the things I want to see. I want to see my teams play in a final. I want to see us win something. And also, um, you know, I just think it's good for the country for England to be doing well at football. And I like Southgate and Rashford and all that sort of thing. So, And also, I, I went to all the games at Wembley, all the England games. So it was just this amazing experience. And I don't, I just think it's, you know, if you think about, we're still getting over like 1996 and 1990. So I, I, I think it will take me a while to get over this. But in the immediate aftermath, I was like, you know what? It's great. I saw us playing a final. We came very close. But it's just that nagging thing at the back of your mind that you think, you actually came. You know, if you think of Rashford's penalty, 
sort of come within inches of winning a tournament. And obviously sport exists in those fine margins, but oh my God, I think that will, unless we actually win something in my life, I think that will always slightly um, gnaw away at me. But I think the the thing to remember is that it was a wonderful, magical ride. It all made us feel great for a bit. And, um, you know, that, that doesn't go. But I, I do feel, I, I get very, very emotional about it. And I, I've cried quite a bit since the final. It just sort of creeps up on me. But anyway, yeah, I, I think you can tell from this rambling answer, I, I'm not fully okay yet. No, I mean, as someone who supports Tottenham Hotspur, I found myself yesterday wondering, what if we'd not sold Dembele and we'd kept him for the Champions League final against Liverpool? <laughs> Maybe we'd have won then. So what my comfort view is this will never leave you. Uh... Yeah, I think you're yeah, right. I think I still... <laughs> yeah, sorry. We're here to talk about politics. Sorry, Gina. <laughs> It's okay. I absolutely understand it. And I think, but I think what's interesting um, up here is we're all just delighted our COVID cases haven't spiked any higher because we got knocked out early enough. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, there's that. You know, there, are, there are benefits to not going all the way, I guess. There's always a silver lining. Always a silver lining. Thoughtful management. So moving on from football, normally this kind of time of year, you would be in Edinburgh, wouldn't you? You would be coming up to do something fringy or festivally? I mean, what, what have you got? What are your plans for the summer? I take it you're, you're not getting out of your cupboard. No, I, I would ordinarily be in Edinburgh and I really miss it. I miss the festival and I miss the city itself. And what's very odd is, I think I've done every Edinburgh in some form since about 2005 uh, until COVID hit. I've never had a year off. I love doing it. I think I'd done something like nine full shows on the on the run each summer. So what's really odd is at this time of year, I'm used to being in Edinburgh. So it was really odd, actually. The other day, I, I was just in the street and I sort of felt, this sounds so strange, but I kind of felt that I was there because the way the weather was, I was like, oh, I'm so used to being in Edinburgh at this time of year that I found myself really daydream about it and really wanting to be there. So it's a real shame that, I mean, some of the festival will happen this year. It won't be the same as it usually is. Um, but I, I, it's such a brilliant place. And the reason why it's so successful is because it's in Edinburgh. That's the whole, the most the most crucial reason for the success of that festival is the city it's hosted in. It's a fantastic place to go for a month. And uh, it's not a holiday, obviously, because it's working, but I love living in Edinburgh for the month. Well, if I add it up, actually, all the festivals I've been there, I, I've lived in Edinburgh for more than a year. But just in, you are, in you fact, know, an honorary citizen. A month at a time. <laughs> oh, I hope so. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love the place, and I miss, I miss everything about it. I think it's there's no other city like it in Britain. The way it looks. Um, so yes, I hate not being there, but hopefully next year. Next year, and normally when you're here, or certainly most recently, you've been doing very political shows. I mean, political comedy is your thing, but you've done them through interviewing politicians on stage I mean how um you know from your your time talking to them all what what's your take of on Scotland's politicians and obviously some of the leaders have changed since you were last up but um you know you've you've spoken to Nicola Sturgeon I mean what 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 is your view about her um as a politician and as a leader well I think in general Scotland has obviously always produced very high quality politicians and I used to work for the Labour Party um I'm not a member of the Labour Party anymore but obviously I was always aware, even as a relatively young member of the Labour Party, that Scotland was 
a real like engine room of talent. You know, if you think about it in football terms, that, like Scotland would be like the best academy in political football. Like everyone would be trying to recreate what Scotland did. If you think of the talent that came through, Donald Dewar, John Smith, Robin Cook, Gordon Brown, Alistair Darling, technically Tony Blair, uh, you know, a remarkable um, slew of talent. And even in the modern era, Salmond and Sturgeon and Willie Rennie and Anna Sawa, you know, real high quality talent. So, and with Nicola Sturgeon, I think um, I think any politician exists relatively, you know, in the sense that it's either them or their opponent. So I think Nicola Sturgeon has been flattered, I think, until fairly recently by her opponents. Um, and by circumstance, I think taking over after the referendum was the single best time any leader of the SNP could ever have led the party. Um I think she's kind of a straightforward politician, uh, is good at messaging, although I say that. I also think, you know, this sort of narrative that developed during COVID that, oh, you know, compared to Westminster, the messaging was so much better. And when we moved from stay at home to stay alert, and then Scotland moved to stay safe. And uh, Nicola said made a bit of a fuss about moving from stay home to, to stay alert. And then basically did the same thing. I think hands face space is much easier to understand than facts which, what on earth does that stand for? So I think in a weird way, she has a reputation for being a really good communicator, but I think on, on fundamental things, actually, isn't very good at that sort of thing. So I think part of the reason for her success is, frankly, there wasn't really much else about. And, uh, you know, I think that's starting to change. It's interesting you, you talk about communication because just this week we've had um, a bit of sushi uh, around her use of language where on last Monday, by the time this uh, podcast goes out, you know, we were supposed to have had all 40 to 49 year olds given the vaccine, which is what she told, uh, there are two jabs of the vaccine, which is what she'd said in Parliament. And then as that wasn't hit, it was something around 76%. You know, it suddenly it wasn't about them being given; it was about them being offered it because obviously it's not mandatory. And if people had enough intelligence, they could understand what she really meant, and not to take her so literally. And we had one of the testiest um, COVID briefings ever in the last uh, fifteen months or so uh, around that issue. And um, it, it was really interesting, you know, to to see her in that position and to and to have her having to defend her own words and say, well, actually. I didn't actually mean that. What I meant was this, and you should all have been clever enough to understand that, which, like you say, kind of undermines her uh, reputation as being a great communicator. Well, I think that what's really interesting is the similarities between her and Alex Salmond in the way that they um, handle questions like that. And even in the body language, and even in that kind of uh, fake kind of smile, you know, there's something culturally, and you see it with the Labour Party and Tony Blair. It's after Tony Blair, you know, every sort of Labour politician, you know, come on, you know, Ed Miliband would do that, and you see Keir Starmer do it a bit. And these sort of behaviours, it's not that they're deliberately copying someone, but you go, oh, that's what a leader sort of looks and sounds like. And then it kind of, you see it in organisations all over the world. You see it in football, you know, they all go, you know, at the end of the day, you know, yeah, it was a great result, the gaffer had a work, you know, this happens everywhere. And Sturgeon has definitely absorbed some of that salmon style, which is the kind of fake bonhomie in every answer. They're kind of, I'm slightly laughing at the, the question you're asking me type thing. And what also comes with that is that testiness. And I think in those moments... You think of the phrase, taking the eye off the ball during that leaders' debate in the last round of Holyrood elections, and you think of that phrase, you know, I, I assume a level of intelligence. They're phrases that are going to come back to haunt you because they're phrases that 
particularly the intelligence one. What's really odd is the SNP accused people of being arrogant more than any other party I've ever known. Never known a party accused their opponents of being arrogant. Actually, they display it more, or seem to display it at least in equal measure to the people that they accuse it of. Talking about assuming intelligence just is, is basically rude. And I always think, now obviously I would say this, what would Tony Blair do? Would Tony Blair ever say something like that? And he wouldn't. The, the answer is always to go above. The answer is always to uh, be polite. And the answer in a situation like that is to say, we may have missed the target. The whole point of setting targets sometimes is to jolt the system into delivering more. And that's what really matters. You don't have to be so sensitive about missing these things, particularly not when the general perception is that you're doing quite well. So it's so odd when they're so sensitive about this stuff because you think, actually, a difficult question is an opportunity in politics. And <laughs> people get so upset when they're asked difficult questions. You think the public love to see you answer a difficult question well. And the best answer is to say, we set ambitious targets because I am ambitious about getting this country out of COVID. I want to save lives. I will never make excuses for pushing this system as far as it can go. If occasionally during COVID, we don't quite hit those numbers, that is a price worth paying for protecting as many people as possible. Why not just say that rather than, well, I thought you were, you know, basically you're not clever enough to understand what I'm on about. I just think answers like that. That's when character is revealed. And I think... When politicians are under pressure, they have to really try hard to maintain a, a light touch. And I realise that that is easier said than done. I was wondering if you see parallels with the uh, with the Corbyn project, because when you say about arrogance in the way that they kind of feel so it's, it's like, so us and them. The criticism or the challenge is like, well, no, we're inherently good and we're the right ones. You're the baddies over there criticizing us. Like, how dare you even say that? We're trying to make things better while you're there doing awful things. And, and as someone, you know, famously, uh, as I'm sure you say on your social media, unites the worst of both of those nationalists and Corbynites. I was wondering if you, if you, if you see any sorts of parallels uh, in, in that sort of rhetoric. Yeah, and I think there are parallels. I mean, since 2014, there have been a number of things that have happened. Obviously, there are things that have happened globally where you can draw that parallel as well. But if you think of the uh, testier elements of that referendum campaign, then Corbyn, then Brexit, you've had, basically, on almost every wing of British politics, people really... Reducing politics to, as you say it, this sort of ludicrous thing where instead of just saying, oh, maybe we've got a different perspective or I disagree with you on that, it's you must be morally inferior to me. Or worse, you're evil or you're bad or you're arrogant or you're nasty. And you hear those words banded around all the time. And I, in the end, it, it doesn't do the people that, that level those charges any good. They're always diminished by it. You're always better off being the bigger person and reaching out. And... These people actually are only ever appealing to a kind of rump of the public. The vast majority of the public don't think about politics like that. Most people have friends who, in any friendship group in Scotland, there'll be people who voted yes and no, Labour, Tory, SNP, leave, remain. And they're perfectly capable in workplaces across Scotland of getting on with each other. The whole hard division... It's, just, it's, it's bizarre to most people. Now, having been through that referendum campaign in 2014, that might have become a bit more realistic for people because it did. It was very destructive for a lot of friendships and families. But on the whole, 
people are comfortable. People don't judge people really on who they vote for. They judge them on, are they funny? Do they, you know, do I work well with this person? Do I like them? So I think when politicians behave in that highly tribal way, it makes them look really odd. And it makes you realise, actually, that most political parties are out of touch with the public. They periodically chime with the public more than their opponents. But political parties, and this goes for all of them, on the whole, are beasts that need to be tamed by their leaders and basically shut up so that the public don't know what they're really like. Very difficult now um, to do that, I guess, in this age of social media, Matt. I mean, talking about the SNP, you know, they were very, very um, good on keeping everything inside and no leaks and everybody singing from the same hymn sheet. And, you, you know, in fact, I think it was written in their code of conduct that you weren't allowed to criticise anybody or a policy uh, publicly that, that, that was within the SNP. And, and, but that's all begun to change, obviously, especially with our last Holyrood election. And we had uh, Alex Salmond back on the scene and the Alba party launching. And, you know, that the divisions even within the yes movement are very clear to be seen. And this desire for a second independence referendum, I, I sometimes wonder whether or not um, the reason it's not happening is because Nicola Sturgeon knows they're, they're too divided as a as a movement. Yeah, I mean, on the loyalty thing, that's a really interesting point because obviously the SNP kind of exists as a successor to Scottish Labour. And that's how lots of its voters think about it, is, well, I'm a Labour person, but this party is now the best custodian of those values. And that's something that the SNP, I think, have been really smart at messaging around 2014 and in the aftermath of that. What's odd is... They are repeating all the same mistakes that Scottish Labour made when they felt invincible in Scotland. Because in the end, whenever you feel invincible, complacency creeps in. And I think one of the things that they failed to learn from Labour, obviously the new Labour era, one of the sort of caricatures of it is Alistair Campbell and Pages and everyone being on the same script. But actually, there was an element of dissent allowed in new Labour. It was, it was, it was kind of important. If you think of some of those cabinets and the people that were in them, people like Claire Short around the cabinet table with Tony Blair. And actually, they were allowed to dissent because there was a, a, a good political understanding that some level of dynamism is required and that actually, in the end, you can't hold total control over people. And I think the, the mistake the SNP have made is to overemphasise loyalty because in the end, you know, at first, people go, that's great, they're united. In the end, it ends up looking really weird that you don't have any differing opinions because obviously we know they exist because... It's not even about politics. It's about how human beings function in any given group of more than even one. Um, and then on top of that, the danger is when the dam breaks, it absolutely goes. And it feels like that's what's happened. And if you look at what's happened with the relationships in the Westminster group, with Joanna Cherry and others, if you look at what's happened to the, the wider independence movement, as you say, the, the arrival of Alipa and, and, and Alex Salmond's re-emergence, is that the dam has now completely broke and the independence movement is... is open warfare with itself. Yeah, it'll be uh, fascinating to see how that progresses because obviously we have council elections uh, next year, never knowingly have a year without an election in Scotland. <laughs> People so, be exhausted. Um, oh, tell us about it. <laughs> and, um, I don't know how the politicians cope, to be honest. Um, and so, uh, uh, yeah, and so this idea um, that, uh, you know, Alex Salmond and his party have, well, maybe, you know, uh, 
have disappeared from the scene, I think, is is probably wrong and they'll be around for the council elections and we'll see whether or not they succeed better there and, and have that whole, you know, from the ground building up uh, political project going again. Just on the Aleppo thing, what's really funny is when Alex Salmond was running the Yes campaign and running the SNP and in that 2014 referendum, there were people on the no side saying, your behaviour is bullying. Uh, we're being heckled in the street. Jim Murphy was pelted with eggs. There was a load of stuff online that was appalling. And people on that side said, oh, no, 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 it's not going on. It's totally fine. It's civic and joyous. Now Alex Salmond is out of the party. All these people in the SNP are now going, oh, this behaviour is terrible. You're like, what? You are the same people who told us, A, it wasn't going on, and B, if it was, it was fine. And all of a sudden, you've opened your eyes to it. Because what happens with these things is they end up turning on themselves. It's inevitable whenever you get whenever you get a ferocious element, if they don't get what they want, they will turn on their own. And that's what's happened is they've turned on. I mean, I have to say, to, to most people in Scotland, it must be uh, mind-boggling. Certainly to people in England, the idea that Nicola Sturgeon is not a staunch enough supporter of independence is an incredible thought. But there are people in that yes movement who now think that. So the irony of all these SNP accounts who were perfectly fine with the way that Salmond ran his campaigns, perfectly fine with the way that ordinary people were completely abused on social media and now horrified because it's happening to them. And you just think, well, actually, when you condemn this stuff, what you actually do is reinforce what a lot of good people were saying in 2014, which is we don't want this to be part of our politics. And those people that allowed it to happen are now the victims of it. Yeah, of course, Nicola Sturgeon is an MI5 plant. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, that, the thought that Nicola Sturgeon isn't a strong enough supporter of Scottish in is so far. It's the sort of thing you'd write as a joke. But some people actually believe it. So, you know. It's funny you talk about a ferocious element then turning on its own at a time that Dominic Cummings is now a full time tweeter who is so offended by bad practice and, you know, things that might lead people to die. He's decided to just blog about it behind a paywall for a bit. <laughs> Just it's, it's it's that thing. I mean, and I I used to talk about loyalty. What you don't get with these uh, SNP MSPs, they don't do what the Tory MPs do. They don't stand up and go, okay, but why are we doing this? And you know, sometimes when they stand up like Charles Walker and they say, "I'm going to walk around with a pint of milk because I'm not getting my own way," it's quite it's mad. But at least they're challenging something. You know, he's he's got props and he's opposing his own party. And I don't think you ever really hear. SNP MSPs go, you know what? Could, could we maybe do this slightly differently? Um, and they only kind of brief that out privately about each other rather than in public. That's a really good point. And I think, I mean, I kind of understand why. I understand that they're in a different position to other parties. And I understand that they feel they're on the brink of achieving this dream they've had forever. And therefore, that requires a level of discipline. I totally understand that. But the problem they have is. If you're not going to achieve that, in the end, in politics, as in life, everything you do creates a sort of domino effect of reactions. Some of those domino rallies sort of spur off and they take years to kind of wheel back. And with all those things, the things that you just described, these are all creating an impression with the public. It might not affect the next election, but they add up to this sort of mountain that in the end, like with Scottish Labour, like with John Major's Tories, people go, actually... This, and then it all, it's then seen as a total sum. 
So I think they're in a really tricky position, to be fair to them, the SNP, where they've got a really popular leader. They're way more popular than any other party in Scotland. They must feel that this this, uh, this ultimate dream is, is within grasp. But they're constantly being frustrated, mainly by the opinion of the Scottish people, which is, if it's, you know, it bubbles around 50-50 and actually it's drifted away from them. But the most important thing is, do you actually want this referendum or not? And most people don't. And that, uh, you know, given watching it from down here, watching the narrative of Sturgeon versus Boris, even from down here, it's actually amazing that the polls aren't more in favour of independence in Scotland. But that, I think that just shows that seeing it as a superficial Sturgeon versus Boris thing isn't the right way. These are fundamental things for people. And it's all right to see it as Nicola versus Boris for a bit. But actually, deep down, the reason why the dial hasn't shifted, it's the same reason why Labour isn't doing better, is... There is a fundamental problem with the with the with the with the offer of independence, which is apart from all the social aspects of it, the economic question still hasn't been answered. Seven years on from that referendum, they still haven't done basically any work on it, which is just incredible. Given that that was the biggest obstacle, they've just kind of gone ah, we'll deal with that later. That should have been the first thing they dealt with, but they can't. And there's a reason why they can't deal with it is because they know. The independence, in the very least, the short and medium term, would be economically negative, and they can't really square that, so they just kind of put it off. And I just think that's why the dial's not shifting is people are still waiting for an answer on that, and you haven't said anything on it. So I guess that explains it. I think their main financial concern at the moment is probably finding the uh, six hundred thousand pounds that was um, left behind the sofa. But I, but I, but I wonder. I mean, do you think? Do you think there will be a second referendum? Because when I when I speak to SNP MPs, they say, you know, oh well, we need to be at sixty percent, and maybe then we'll have it. And we have had Boris, who is, you know, <laughs> I think we'll say not good for Scotland. Um, to be fair, to be as fair to him as possible, and then Brexit. I mean, the conditions, the perfect conditions, have been created. They've been in power this long. There still is not support for independence and uh, enough of a majority. Do you think there even will be a second vote? Because it's not in their interest to have one now. And what will change in the future? Well, that's it. You, you, you want to call it when you can win it, especially as it's the second one. Because then if you lose that, I mean, although I say that, I mean, this is the thing you go, if they lose that, it's definitely over. As if, you know, as if they're all going to stop wanting it. You know, And wanting it's not an ignoble thing, you know. But my... um. The reason why I'm against it isn't because I don't think Scotland could be an independent country or that it's not an amazing place full of talent and riches and all those things. I just think, and the same reason I voted to remain in the EU, I think you're better off around a table with your partners. That comes at a cost. Those costs can often be very, very annoying, particularly when you're in a union with England. I fully accept all that stuff. But the cost of leaving, I think, is too high. And I thought the same with the EU. So whether it comes or not, I mean, I think you could slightly argue that they've got a mandate, although obviously they they did change their messaging in that final week of the Hollywood campaign where they're like, oh, well, it won't be the first two years, you know, because they realised that was going down really, really badly. So actually they kind of talked themselves out of their, their own mandate towards the end, even though they'd have probably just won comfortably anyway, um, in terms of, you know, seats rather than a, an outright majority. But, I mean, if you call it when you can't win it, I think you get to a point where let's say the polls start to narrow between the Labour Party and, and the SNP in Scotland, if Anna Sawa really starts to cut through and they go, well, we've got to have it before we lose an election, then I think they probably just try and have it regardless of where they are. And they might say, in 2014, we started on 20%. We got to 
you know, 44 and a half or whatever. Um, so if we're starting at 44 and a half or whatever, then all we've got to do is heave the boulder another 6%. Um, and I think that's the danger of like a rash decision. If, if they think they're about to lose the next election, then they've kind of got to go for it because they might go, well, this is it. This is our last go. So they, they might roll the dice, but I, I think making a prediction about it is so hard because <laughs> even though you go, well, COVID's not going to be over for years. I mean, this is something the planet is now going to be dealing with for generations. Obviously, you know, you see with Brexit, if a, if a motivated minority can get their hands on power, they will use it to deliver the thing that they're obsessed with. So I, I don't think you can rule it out, but if they were being completely responsible, they, they wouldn't even be talking about it now. But obviously, I get that they really want it, but my God, you know, and it, I don't know. I mean, do you think there's going to be one soon? I mean, be, before COVID, I'd have gone, you know, any minute now, but... Yeah, know. it's very difficult. Well, as you say, predicting any of these things is is a mug's game. But it's, um, I mean, 2023 is kind of the timescale that uh, Nicola Sturgeon has suggested. Uh, in our last uh, podcast, we were talking about Boris Johnson's two years as leader and wondering whether or not he'd be around in 2023. And maybe we're just, she's just uh, <laughs> holding off until he disappears from the scene because he's very he's been very staunch let's face it and saying that there will be no second referendum as far as he's concerned and yeah, I mean, um, it kind of cuts you know, both ways the boris thing doesn't it because he is obviously kryptonite in scotland and large parts of england and again he only is prime minister because the option was him or corbyn you know what what happened at the last westminster election at the last uk election was all corners of the, you know, Scotland and England were united in not wanting Jeremy Corbyn to be prime minister. So even though that was expressed in votes for the SNP and the Conservative Party, there was something actually deeply unifying about that election results. And with Boris and with Brexit, they both cut both ways because Boris is kryptonite. But also, if he says no, then you can't have the referendum. Now, again, that's one of those things that might fester as a rash where people say well actually even people who voted no would say well we should be able to decide when we have the next one They're not comfortable with boris johnson saying never or, or him being in charge of that decision and of course a lot of no voters don't like boris johnson brexit's the similar thing where you go well on the face of it brexit makes it look like a gift to the independence movement and in a way it is but it is all again there is another side to that which is seeing the way that brexit's gone and seeing the, the 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 phrases that were identical in both campaigns, Project Fear, you're talking the country down. Now we've seen with Brexit, actually those dire warnings do come true. And it's not Project Fear to say that jobs will relocate. It's not Project Fear to say that your economy will take a hit. So now voters in across the UK go, oh my God, leaving has big consequences. So in a weird way, I think it... it it's a double-edged sword for the SNP. It's a real demonstration that going into an, a referendum and kind of blagging it and busking it can lead to dire consequences for people. And people now have, have tangible examples of, of how that can go bad. Absolutely. I mean, it, yes, it, it never fails to um, surprise me how people, how there seems to be a disconnect in people's heads between the language that is used, you know, for independence and for Brexit, and they can't quite see that it's the same arguments and the same, the same language that that, that politicians use around that. Um, but I mean, Boris Johnson, he's been a bit of a gift to you as well, hasn't he, Matt? Let's face it. <laughs> for, for your oh career. yeah, I mean, I would, <laughs> I would be slightly. Um, I'd like to get a few more years out of him. Obviously, as he's been the centerpiece of. Um, 
you know, my last two or three shows really and, and spitting image. And the problem is with these things is that at the point at which your impression is at its very best, they go. Because obviously the longer they hang around, the better it becomes. So with Boris, you know, I guess a lot of people could do kind of, you know, the, the kind of undercoat, which, you know, you can kind of, uh, but then all the, all the extra little touches, all the little, um, Details come in time, so I uh, yeah, I want to pay tribute to Gene uh, and this wonderful uh, podcast, and you know all the uh, thing he does, uh, looking to the side, and uh, come on, you know I I think we're going to do it, I really do, and they're speeding up, yes, and, and the, the, the sort of fake enthusiasm and all that sort of thing, and and then uh, do this thing where yeah I want to pay tribute to the uh, the NH uh, National Health Service, yeah, and the uh, partners in the E. Uh, European and this sort of mumbling bit and then I only noticed something the, last year where he does a thing where he obviously loves the sound of his own voice but he really slow down to really pronounce every kind of millimetre of a word to go oh, you know I, I haven't thought too much about it and he'll really just sort of ring out the last drops of that syllable sometimes so Every day he's in office, my impression is improving and getting better because there's more and more to notice. And then they'll go and you think, oh, crikey, I've got to start with square one now with someone else. So, um, And also, of course, he is just a kind of comedic individual. That's part of his appeal. That's a deliberate thing that he put into that persona to you know, appeal to certain people. <laughs> but he's, he's way more fun to it. Him and Trump are just so much fun to impersonate really than anyone else so yes i've I, for for comedy purposes um I, I could do them hanging around for at least another couple of years i thought we talked we talked about this last week and we were saying you know how long we thought he'd stay and i said well you know he's got as a generational politician who can say whatever he wants by any minority group or anything and it completely be fine he could do three terms i could see that very easily but i think i've now revised my view slightly not to you know <laughs> concern you for your your glittering comedy career going forward. But I was speaking, speaking to people in Dowding Street and the impression is that he is just incredibly bored and lazy now and just wants it all to be over. I, I, I was speaking to people and they say they just keep cancelling things and it's like, um, well, I can't say the actual word, but sod it. I just want to go to checkers. Um, which, and this is a miserable staff. And I, you can, keep, you can only say level up for so long before it just has to mean something tangible. He right, has a very low boredom threshold, don't you think? That's his problem. It's like he, yeah, yeah, he just does things and then he wants to move on to the next thing. So, yeah, and the thing is, as a man who doesn't believe in the consequences of actions, but you do need to have consequences as a prime minister. You need to actually do things. So, I, I, I think it is quite stressful for him having to, you know, having to get up and go to work. Yeah, and I think you know what amazes me is someone who briefly worked for New Labour. I wasn't there at the start. I worked for it in a very lowly position towards the end. But the discipline, the, the obsession with politics and how to do it really has not been replicated by anyone else. And I, it, it amazed, David Cameron fell into the same trap. They're so complacent about things. If you think about, it drives me mad when I think about this, the generations of Tories who were actually pro-European but were just, you know, bash Brussels, bit of red meat to the, to the, to the activists. And Cameron says in his autobiography, he always thought it was basically harmless. And you're like, how could you think that? There is nothing that's harmless in politics. Every word that comes out of your mouth has an impact somewhere. And if you're trashing a thing 
And then some years down the road, you're then going to try and go, actually, I know I've all been slagging it off. But it's actually quite a good idea. That lack of intensity, that lack of thinking about the consequence of all these actions. As someone who worked for New Labour, it, just, it blows my mind that you wouldn't pick someone who was really focused on what to do with government. And also, apart from anything else, without sounding like, I don't know what the word is, almost pious about it or, or too earnest. Being in government is the most important job in the country. You could transform this nation's future. There's so much good you could do. How are you not motivated by that? Why do we keep choosing people that are completely ill-suited to it? On all sides, I, I think the public must be absolutely just shocked and appalled by certainly the last five or ten years on both sides of the Labour and the Conservative Party, just thinking, why do you keep picking people that are terrible at it? You know, we went from having, like, whatever you think of Thatcher, that was a very intense individual who really thought about what she wanted to do. Tony Blair, the same, obviously a very different type of personality, but driven people who had a plan for what they wanted to do in government. And now we've got Boris Johnson, who, as you say, is basically part-time. How could you be bored? You've got all this power at your disposal. All these amazing things you could do. He's just not that bothered in it. He's there entirely for career gratification. And that has terrible consequences for all of us. God, it's really It's a real shame that this is just audio because um, for, <laughs> for our listeners, Matt's head is in his hands. <laughs> all of that, um, oh, as you no. might imagine, actually. It makes me... It makes me yeah. think of that um, that clip of Gordon Brown at Labour conference where he lists <laughs> off all the achievements, you know, sure start, short start poverty, etc., education, education, etc., uh, and lists yeah. all the achievements of New Labour. And when you know, when we look back and reflect on Boris Johnson, it's going to be well, got Brexit done, but then kind of had to like redo it and redo it, and it's still kind of there <laughs> constantly forever now. Um, and then just a, a series of level up and other catchphrases. I, I, I with, a, with, with a majority that big, it's supposed to be transformational, right? They could do whatever they want. They could reform tax entirely. There is no policy that they could not try or not do um, with absolute ease. And the main big one they forced through in the face of, you know, a bit of public opposition was cutting foreign aid. <laughs> yeah, it's not a great record. I mean, you mentioned Gordon Brown, obviously. Um, he was... Uh... I loved his his sort of rhetorical style, that sort of booming. He could just sort of go on forever, Gordon. I think he's probably still out there. I don't think that sentence is finished. He's probably still out there. He was able to just, you know, when you saw him during that referendum campaign, you saw him Brexit as well, prowling the stage. This is the change we choose that allows us to see no child should be left behind. These are our values. We believe in, de the way he said devolution as well, devolution, beautiful pronunciation. And, and he would always add, an S to millions and billions during budgets from 32.8 billions in 97.98 to 82.9 billions in 98.99. Mr. Speaker, this is a Labour budget and I commend it to the House. Yeah, that beautiful, booming. I really miss that. You watch, you watch some Gordon Brown clips back. I think, my God, he was a phenomenal communicator. And I think as with Tony Blair... Uh, their place in history becomes more and more elevated with each um, successor. Yeah. You've just made me um, consider Gordon Brown as the political equivalent of Mick Jagger. 
Filling <laughs> <laughs> the stages into his 90th year, still <laughs> listing, doing all the greatest labour hits, you know? I can't get no snap election. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it's funny to talk about Domino's effect and then Gordon Brown, because I think one of the things was the bigoted woman and then the backlash against that when she was indeed a bigoted woman and the opposition pretended otherwise. And I think, you know, the RLNI uh, stuff we're having now and the debate about migrants, you've got Gordon Brown being blasted for that, Cameron saying a swarm of migrants, and you can see like a clear path to Farage and like where the discourse is now. It's, you know, we've gone from perfectly legitimate concerns about, Im- about immigration to where we are now. Well, I think with Gillian Duffy, was she a bigoted woman? I think a lot of people express themselves in ways that when you're part of sort of professional media and political class and people think about their words and they get that opportunity each time they do a radio interview to just, just sharpen their words a bit and to really think about how it sounds and how it lands and then arrive at a form of words that is far more considered and has been tested over and over and over again, formally and informally, that I think we have to be really careful not to judge people who might express themselves clumsily. Now, I don't know whether she's a bigot or not. And certainly the form of words she used, which, you know, where, where are they all coming from or something like that, doesn't sound that politically correct. But what I saw in Gillian Duffy was someone who was a Labour voter who just wanted a good answer to that question. And one of the problems, and this annoyed me when I worked for the party, was Labour correctly allowed immigration into Britain. And that was good for us. That was good for us economically. It was good for us socially. Huge benefits to all that. But those things, obviously, those changes affect people's lives. And I always thought with Labour that we're in a really weird position where we were clearly, in policy terms, champions of immigration and right to be and should continue to be. But we weren't always talking about it. We sort of let it happen, but didn't make the positive case. And I think in politics, you always have to be And it's so weird that New Labour, this sort of great, this party obsessed with communication, something like immigration actually didn't do the hard work on the communication side and didn't say, look, this is happening and here are the benefits. And I think a lot of people like Gillian Duffy never got the other side of the argument. And I think when when you don't put that side, particularly on issues like this, there's only one group of people talking about it. And that's the language you're going to hear and that's the language you're going to repeat. So I think rather than just say, Gillian, I, well, not that you would have known her name at that point, but rather than just say, oh, it's great that people are coming here, by the way. And then she goes to wherever she goes to next. And when her friends are saying, oh, you're a Labour voter, what about this show? Oh, I spoke to Gordon Brown and he, he actually told me that, you know, they contribute more than the average uh, British taxpayer. It's good for us. You know, that's all people wanted to hear was give us the positives. And I just thought it was so strange with New Labour that we, we never really made a concerted effort to, to really champion the positives of immigration. And... Um, in communications terms. And I think that's, in the end, why it ended up becoming such a festering sore. It's one of the reasons, anyway. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because that's this, you could say the same for why the Remain side didn't win for Brexit, because, you know, all the good things about the EU being part of the EU, nobody talked about those for years. It was just what they were hearing, like you said earlier, about you know David Cameron allowing... Uh, his MPs to talk about Europe in the way they did. That's what people heard. And it's the same as Scotland in terms of the union. You know, what people are hearing over and over again is how um, toxic it is to be part of uh, the United Kingdom. 
you know, and people, I think a lot of people in the main go, oh, yeah, well, it's not great, you know, but like you say, it's not shifting the polls yet in terms of independence, but, um, but there's not, the, the argument isn't coming back the other way, you know, I mean, I know this, this Tory government are trying to do that in the sense of, you know, here, here's money, we're, we're going to circumvent the Scottish Parliament, never a good look, and go straight to councils, um, and, you know, we're going to do these things and we'll put up Union Jet flags, again, flags are just just the worst political symbol in the world, I think. And, you know, it just, it it, it feels the same. It's all these same mistakes keep being made and uh, where that will take us, I think, in terms of uh, another independence referendum is yet to be seen. Um, sorry, can I just take you back a wee bit, uh, Matt, to, to our Scottish politicians? You've mentioned Anna Sarwar. You even mentioned Willie Rennie as being one of our leading lights of politics. He's sadly departed the leadership stage. Um, we have a, a contest to be the next leader of Scottish Liberal Democrats, which only has one candidate so far who is likely to be elected, Alex Cole Hamilton. He is somebody I think you need to start working on in terms of, you know, uh, <laughs> your com- comedy material. Have you? Do you know much about him at all? Yes, I've met him a couple of times. Um, I mean, one of the things about Woody Rennie, and I think the reason he's so popular is two things are true about Scottish politics is that particularly since and around the referendum, things got very, very heated and uh, the sores of that kind of last. But there's another truth about Scottish politics, which is it's also a really fun place. And it feels at times more informal than than perhaps it's, it's Westminster um, op- opposite number, that it's a, a smaller place. And that means that... It's also a bit friendly and a bit more informal. And Willie Rennie is probably the embodiment of that, the positives of that informality in Scottish politics. He has a lot of fun with it. And, um, you know, so did Ruth Davidson. Many other people have as well. But I think he more than anyone embodied that sense of fun around Scottish politics. And that really (laughs) has been needed, really, in the last seven years. So I think he uh, kind of a positive light. Obviously, he's still around, but I just thought he was such a, an important person to have around to just take the sting out of things, to calm things down, to, to remind people that um, politics actually can be fun. It doesn't have to always be earnest, culture war-driven division. It can uh, it can have its lighter moments. But uh, Alex Cole Hamilton, yes, I've met him a couple of times. Again, he's a funny bloke. So you know that in a way that that makes him. I don't know if anyone's going to stand against him, but at the moment, as you say, he's the only candidate. So uh, if it is him, I think in a way that that kind of that legacy of Willie Rennie will hopefully live on. And in terms of Anas Sarwar, um, what, what's your take on him? Obviously, you knew Kezia Dugdale quite well. I don't know if you had any dealings with Richard Leonard at all, who's been in between, but now Labour has yet another uh, leader. Um, and, uh, and again, actually, I think the election campaign showed that he has got quite a light touch. Did you see him? Zumba dancing outside the football yes, stadium. Yes, I did, yeah. Um, I, in fact, I, wa- I think I watched all of the TV debates and I thought he won all of them. I think he's one of the most talented politicians the Labour Party has. I think he's one of the most likeable politicians in, in UK politics, and he has. You know what's remarkable about him? I, I, obviously, I'm a football fan, so I, I can't resist a kind of sporting metaphor. But he, you know, so many politicians, when you watch them in a leadership debate, whether you would vote for them or not, you can see the pressure. And it is a bit like watching England sometimes. You think, oh my God, you know, they're talented, but under that spotlight, it can get to them. He is exceptionally composed. He never loses his temper. He never stutters. He's really naturally gifted in terms of leadership under pressure. And he's funny. And I think there's something about 
He strikes the right tone. Now, I know at the moment, public opinion in, in Scotland is still, you know, in terms of party loyalty, the SNP is still very, very popular. But I just thought watching those debates, what, what I th thought was incredible was he wins the first one because basically what happens is in those debates, the SNP and the Tories are arguing about the Constitution and Anas the whole time was talking about COVID, which is what the whole world is talking about. And I thought it was really interesting watching those debates because at the last Hollywood election or, you know, for the past three or four rounds of any elections, Westminster, Hollywood, whatever, independence for a while was like the kind of new thing. Even though it's a, a, an idea that's been around for a very long time, in, its, in this incarnation of the SNP, with the fact, you know, the post-2014 landscape, it felt like, oh, independence is a new thing, and everyone's reacting to this new disruptive force. COVID immediately dated it. And seeing Nicola Sturgeon talk about a referendum, you're just like, hang on, this is like, it's almost like pre- and post-war. You go, well, this is a line now. Everything we do now is post-COVID. That's, that's for our generation, for those that follow, this is the, this is the now the, the watermark that defines everything that follows, as the war did. It just felt really odd. I mean, I know that Nicola Sturgeon wants an independence referendum. I know she's the leader of the SNP. But it felt very strange. You're like, oh, those two are having a discussion from five years ago. And Anas Sawa is talking about the here and now and the future. And I just think he's got a really good um, voice anyway. You know, beautiful, lyrical. Is that him to me? You know, I think we can be a better country. He's got be what he's got is two amazing accents running at the same time, which is his Glaswegian and his Pakistani heritage. And they're both very expressive, you know. As I did me, I, I loved that. that I mean, that there was one, was it like the student debate that they had where they're all on Zoom and Nicola Sturgeon got really annoyed. And then basically, because it was on Zoom, whoever talked just came, it was like a sketch where you think it's, is that him to me? And then Douglas Ross went, she's talking about sitting on the fence and asked, of course it's aimed at you. I just thought, oh man, that the timing of both of those lines was perfect. You couldn't have written that better if it was a sketch. I was like, oh man, it really made me howl. But he can, you know, that tone that Anas has got, where it's, he's perfected that thing where you don't doubt that he's serious, you certainly don't doubt that he's intelligent, uh, or that he cares. You know, he's able to do so much so easily. I think he's a phenomenal talent. So, uh, and he's likable. You know, having likable politicians around really helps because. If you're going to lose, you want to think, well, actually, if it's that guy in charge, I don't mind too much. And that's a big part of politics. And I think sometimes that's something that the SNP haven't thought about a lot. <laughs> and you mentioned Douglas Ross there. Again, another new leader uh, that we're, who we're all uh, getting used to. I mean, do you think he is the man to, to topple Nicola Sturgeon? Well, it's really fun. Well, <laughs> probably not. But he, what's funny about him is, I see the way that people, I see the, like on his social media sometimes, and you think, oh, that's a bit punchy. And you see the way, certainly that the SNP reacts out, Douglas Ross is that, the other. So it creates this impression that this guy is a bit of an edgelord. You know, to you, quite, quite sort of softly, I mean, I'm, this, I mean, I've not worked on a Douglas Ross impression, so forgive me if I don't get the, you know, the sort of geography of his Scottish accent right. But actually, quite softly spoken and asked, do you not agree that actually we should be working together? And you're like, Hang on, I thought this guy was going to be like a sort of ranting, raving, swivel-eyed. And then you say, actually quite softly spoken. You think, oh. So actually, I think he's quite a disarming figure, Douglas Ross. I don't think he's going to become First Minister of Scotland anytime soon. Um, but again, that, that element of surprise, you think, well, that's why it's really important not just to consume politics through social media, because 
your opinion of someone based on their Twitter feed is probably going to be more negative than it would be based on whether you met them. And other people's reactions to them are sometimes heightened. And then just the same with Nicholas Sturge. I love the photos of them behind the scenes at the debates. And Ruth Davidson tweeted that picture of, I think, her and Nicholas sharing a bag of sweets a few years ago. I just thought, oh, you need to see those pictures sometimes. Because you go, oh, actually, this is fine. Of course they have to be opponents in the debate. But you want to know. I remember when um, I used to watch the A-Team as a kid and would be quite distressed by the fighting. And my mum would say, they're just actors. They all go to the pub afterwards. And I think about that sometimes with Hollywood leaders' debates is, they're all going to get on at some point. They all chat in the canteen. We shouldn't get too, uh, we shouldn't get too upset by all this. Well, that uh, feels like a, a very good place to leave this uh, edition of the Steamy. I mean, none of us should get too upset about any of it, um, apart from uh, Alex and I, of course, because we need to keep being upset about stuff so we have things to write about. Oh, of course, yeah, it's good for business. <laughs> um, that's, that's my practice outrage, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> But thank you so much, Matt, for uh, giving us your time for the Steamy. It's been a joy and for throwing in uh, those impressions there. Um, delighted to hear those. Um, thank you very much. And you can come back anytime. You have an open invitation to come and give us your views on Scottish oh, politics. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'd love to come back. And I, I, I feel like I've just waffled on a load of rubbish. I should say as well. Obviously, a lot of this is focused on the SNP because they're in government. I have a lot of friends in the SNP who I got on really well with, so I don't want people to think that I've been overly negative about one side. Obviously, that reflects my politics, but there are a lot of really talented people in the SNP who I really get on with. You talk about their sort of informal um, you know, characters. Hamza Youssef has that sort of similar appeal to Anas. You know, he's really, really funny, charismatic. So, you know, I'm, I'm, by no means am I saying that those... Uh, individuals only exist on one side. You know, they can they can be found everywhere. And um, yeah, and there you are. You've, you've joined <laughs> Anna on that fence, I think. Some of my friends are SNP. Well, thank you very much again, Matt. And uh, it, it's been a pleasure. See you some other time. Anytime. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman.